Hey folks, once again, our supporters have enabled us to record some extra discussion that is behind our paywall for Partially Examined Life Citizens or $5 a month Patreon members. And I want to present some clips of that to you, not only to call your attention to that release and maybe induce you to donate, but because I think some of the points made here are interesting, even taken in isolation. So first, Wes and I continued to talk after our episode 189 on authorial intent for about an hour and a half. First, I want to play you a couple clips from our relating the discussion there to general philosophy of language. You know, we talked about the meaning of a work of art. Well, wouldn't that be, insofar as we're talking about language, wouldn't that be dependent on your account of meaning and its relation to language itself? And so the mentalist theories, Paul Grice's theory, is that we determine what a piece of language means, not just by what it traditionally means, like according to the dictionary, but by the intention of the speaker. So he gives this example, well, South Bend is not exactly New York City. So yeah, we can know what literally that means, but what the speaker probably meant there is, you know, like the restaurants aren't as good in Indiana as in New York City and, you know, a whole, a whole cluster of other snobby things about New York City. And so Grice actually thinks that speaker meeting is the primary thing that we should pay attention to. And it's actually, it's only a matter of conventional meanings are just built out of lots of speakers meaning the same thing by the same phrase over time. And that sort of sticking. So that's the mentalist account. That's one of them, the, the most famous one. And for the non-mentalist, what do we mean by social? I mean, we have talked about later Wittgenstein and meaning as use. And I think that's one of the classic examples of a rival theory that's not intentionalist. So in this case, the meaning of a word, most briefly in philosophical investigations 43, the meaning of the word is its use in the language in most cases, he says, or for a large class of cases. That's opaque, <laughs> but that idea of its being use gets us where it's being like a sort of words being like chess pieces or something where their, their meaning is not some specific entity in the head, but it's a sort of all the possible ways in which they could be used by a language speaker. Let's put it that way. It's more about potentialities than some actual image in the mind or something like that. Just once we get into that world of potentiality, we, we sort of move into a world which is no longer strictly intentional or no longer strictly in someone's head. We also spent some time in this follow-up discussion talking about the Knapp and Michaels article against theory. Here are a couple clips from that. I don't think we even really said what Knapp and Michaels' conclusion is, which is that theory is unnecessary because there is no gap between the intended meaning and the actual meaning of the poem not just that the actual meaning reflects the intended meaning, they are one and the same entity. And so rules about how to, what constitutes a legitimate interpretation based on, well, I, I was going to say based on this distinction between the intended meaning and the, and the actual meaning are illegitimate. But I, I think further than that, there are no rules that are legitimate at all. But you just outlined just co the, the, the rule of coherence. So let's say we allow you know, intended meaning to actually still include unintended elements so that you can, if somebody makes an utterance, well, you know, they mean the literal part of what they mean. They mean the perlocutionary aspect of what they had in mind, but then they're, they're also, because they're human beings that have a whole lot of unconscious stuff going on, they might mean quite a few more things. And because they're within a social milieu, then it, they might mean more things 
But still, if that statement, South Bend is not exactly New York, in Urdu means fuck your mama, then I think it's clearly illegitimate to say, wow, the meaning of that phrase Fuck your mama works in there, like, unless somehow fuck your mama is very consonant with the rest of the tone of the piece, so that you can see this as an, an another an unintended but organically fitting element. Probably that's just completely irrelevant, wouldn't you say? That that's that's a piece of theory to say that that's irrelevant. Yeah, you're pointing to something in which the subtext is not. We might be tempted to think that subtext, but the author doesn't speak Urdu. And it's just an accident. Yeah, it seemed like when we were looking at the Barth and Foucault that they were glorifying the reader. And to really fill out that part of the picture, we would have had to read, we had almost read, you know, in addition to the intentional fallacy, the whims out and beards they discuss, they discuss, what is it, the expressive fallacy? The effective fallacy. So I we did not read that, and so I can't talk, speak on that. But, you know, just looking at the Barth and Foucault, it seems like they are in favor of the multiplicity of possible, you know, the tyranny of the author must go away. So the multiplicity. So actually the getting the Urdu <laughs> fuck your mom connection would be a legitimate move because the piece of literature is in the public. It's in the reader's hands. And if that's something that the reader can bring to bear, and it seems actually really any freaking association connotation that the reader could bring to bear could at least be a legitimate thing to discuss and say that this is an aspect of the poem's meaning. So I think in the reader's case, as a, as a matter of like investigatory procedure, it would be really remarkable, right? If it were just there accidentally some phrases of Urdu in there, that's sort of like the words washing up on the beach and then, and then Knapp and Michael's yeah, if we stipulate that it actually was random, then the question of whether it means something becomes enormously complex. Now, eventually, we got into the practice of criticism itself, and Wes had pointed out an article about the critic James Wood to me. You know, you could still reject theory in a sense of wanting to reject these more postmoderny or post-structuralist sorts of frameworks for approaching things, or, or a psychoanalytic framework or a feminist framework. You might reject theory in that sense and simply want to go back to a simpler new critic approach. But still, I think there's a lot of theory there in the sense of methodology. Right. So Wood is against imposing your philosophical view on something by reading it in a certain way that he did not like what this trend that he saw of people just basically evaluating morally, which we see all the time now in social justice sort of reviews of things on TV and stuff and just talking about the stereotypical representations of blah, blah, blah. And that is a thing to be concerned about. Perhaps it should not substitute for actual interpretation of the meaning of the, of the work. Like you can't just because somebody uses all white characters and maybe even has a bunch of junky ethnic stereotypes in there. Does that reduce the meaning of the work? Well, actually, this is an open question that as I'm saying this it actually does seem to me like, well, it does mean actually that it's a perpetuation of a racist or whatever worldview. And that actually is part of the meaning of the work. Yeah, I'm not objecting to that. And I think Wood would have a nuanced position on that. I only sent this as actually not as a critique of certain methods of interpretation, but just as an example of the types of claims that are made. So for instance, at some point, the critic who's writing this article will talk about whether something in, in the novel is persuasive. And what do we mean by that? Well, a lot of it we mean, we might mean causal plausibility, the way events are linking up plot wise, but a lot of, a lot of times we're talking about 
psychological plausibility. I just wanted to get at the sense in which there is a methodology going on. You might disagree that it's largely psychological, but there's something like that going on. And these sorts of claims that critics are making are highly interpretive and not simply a matter of, of reading the explicit meaning of something. Right. I think psychological interpretations, when we're not talking about the psychology author, but the psychology of the characters, are just part and parcel of the coherence interpretations of, you know, does it make sense not even just that the characters would act this way psychologically, but that this kind of result would happen given the things that are set up. If there are really improbable coincidences, like unless the world has been set up so that there's an act of fate going on under underlying, and you can say that, you know, it is not a coincidence that the ring fell in the hands <laughs> of a little hobbit like you, that because there are greater forces at work, like that's fine if that's part of the makeup of the universe, but like that's how you interpret what this universe is, is by reflecting on, are they supposed to, like, that's the first thing that kids think of, like, that wouldn't really happen, or that that character wouldn't really do that, and you might have to explain to the kid, like, well, this is a the sort of logic that happens in fables, or something like that, which is actually not what happens in real life. Just what, what kind of genre conventions are being brought forward? Yeah, I mean, I think even with fables, there can be a different type of coherence. And, and it's not just that we're trying to be pedants, or sticklers, or something like that, or literal-minded when we make those critiques you know a lot of it is about the effect on the reader the dramatic effect whether they whether you can succeed dramatically by pulling those moves so it's not just that we care about plausibility for the sake of plausibility but in a certain type of narrative structure that's meant to have a sort of intended to have a certain kind of effect on the reader or to produce certain kinds of satisfaction in the reader people are going to say what or just it's going to seem like it doesn't work all right, to finish this off, we're going to play a couple of clips from a separate recording. We did it after episode 190. The edited version available behind the paywall is only 35 minutes long. But Wes and I were trying to sound out, should we do another episode on identity politics? We go through what elements of that we've already covered in other episodes, talk about what we actually mean by the term. It's been pretty polarizing when we've covered it in the past. We might want to stick to more traditional philosophical texts. I certainly don't want to invite Wes to give the same political rant that he's given on several other episodes already. Here's a little part of that discussion, which actually contains the heart of Wes's rant, if you want to hear that. I think a lot of the left wouldn't even object to my, if you look at the, the really the, the fringes of Twitter, I mean, they're pretty clearly going to talk about the evils of whiteness. I mean, Tahanesi Coates recently called whiteness the greatest danger in the world. And this idea that whiteness is evil and must be eradicated, not in the sense of eradicating white people, but in the sense of relieving people of their whiteness, thought of as this horrible socially constructed thing that involves, as Baldwin said, having this inferior being to which one is related, then it's pretty clear that this idea of an inherent moral inferiority is at work. But even without that, you just have to analyze this idea. For white people to have special obligations means they have to have a special type of guilt which means that that guilt has to have been inherited collectively by virtue either of race or by virtue of the social construction whiteness. And this idea of collective guilt is not coherent, which means that those special obligations are not coherent. So ideas like around cultural appropriation or what white people are allowed to say about certain policy issues, I think all you have to do is analyze that to get to my position where this is really more about status than well-being. If it's really about someone's feelings being hurt, 
because a white person has a different idea of what some policy should be. That's different than, you know, a white person uttering racial epithets. And, but I don't think it, often, I don't think it's treated as different. So clearly, you know, one of your other things that you've taken up repeatedly is scientism, which I think is a worthy cause in terms of it is a lack of education about philosophy, really, that makes one, you want to have questions be answered. You're aware of the history of science or, you know, the, the things it does for us every day. And so it's pretty natural unless you have taken a philosophy course or some other humanities related educational endeavor, whether on your own or in an organized setting, then, you know, it's pretty natural to think science will answer all your questions. And so in that, that sort of problem is something that people can be inflicted with just as a mental mistake. It's not that they necessarily, there are, people who are rabid about this and just dismiss philosophy as a bunch of junk. So do you think that this issue of misplaced understanding of guilt, collective guilt, supporting of identity politics is also something like scientism that rational people, otherwise rational people that just haven't thought about this in in the way that you have can be afflicted with, or is it inextricably tied to hysteria? Really just Aristotle 101. (laughs) Right. There's a proper amount of enthusiasm to have about noble causes. <laughs> if you're too lame about it, then you're, you know, a coward and a quizzling and you don't have any force of your convictions. But if you're too spirited, then you're not rational. You're not able to engage with people constructively. Is that really what's going on with most of what you object to about this issue? Or is it really the intellectual mistake? For some reason, I have this gut feeling that you have someone in specific in mind when you're talking about hysteria. But Well, the Nussbaum is really, you know, we had that episode with her talking about anger. We also then on the Bell Hooks episode right around that time, we had the guest from the Unmute podcast. She was actually writing something in response to Nussbaum about anger. She didn't like how Nussbaum was saying anger is not justified, that anger needs to be constructive. Who is this who is writing this? Maisha Cherry. We might get her back when she finishes her dissertation or whatever it is she was writing, responding to that because it seemed interesting. But it comes down to kind of the Malcolm X thing where given past injustices, yeah, anger is justified and anger beyond what Nussbaum would consider to actually be constructive anger, which is really not anger at all. It's more channeling anger into action. Whereas, so I don't know what Maisha's argument for this is, but that seems to be the kind of thing that Coates himself perhaps is too much feeling the need, not just to state the case, but to have a display of righteous fury. And that in itself is a vice. I'll tell you what actually bothers me. And as someone who's been a lefty for a long, long time, part of it is I, I do feel betrayed by all of this behavior now on part of the left. I do think it is, you know, I think hysteria is a good word. But mainly, I just think it's bigoted. It's a violation of a principle that you just do not make these pejorative generalizations about people or ascribe collective guilt to them, whether they're Muslims black people or white people. And I think it's really, really dangerous. The rationalization of every nationalist is, well, yes, that's wrong, but I found a group which really is, does have something wrong with it, whiteness, for instance. And we really must talk about this, and it's not bigoted because of power relations, because of the relations of whiteness to those who are oppressed. That's the same rationalization that every nationalist has always used. Clearly, there are folks that have the attitudes that you're objecting to, and so this is a legitimate political beef. 
whether it is a legitimate philosophical beef, I'm not sure. You know, whether the solution to that is to actually have an episode where we read Tanishi Coates, you know, and get law back <laughs> to give it legitimacy, whatever. <laughs> or would that really give us anything over and above what we already got out of Baldwin, who probably said the same thing much, much better? Baldwin said everything in a much better and more nu- nuanced way because Baldwin struggled with his Rizantamah. I see this as just unbridled Rizantamah. All right, so you can weigh in. You can tell us whether that's the kind of topic you want us to do more of or whether you just want us to go read more Wittgenstein or Plato or whatever. All right, I hope you've enjoyed these excerpts. Again, you can get the full discussions at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Click on the members menu, become a Partially Examined Life citizen, or go to patreon.com slash partiallyexaminedlife. Sign up at the $5 level, and all this bonus content can be yours. Thanks again so, so much to all of you. Whether you've contributed or not, it is your interest in energy that makes us want to keep doing this. Hope you have a great weekend. There'll be a new episode out on Monday.